Welcome to Dublin City University Conflict Institute Podcasts, bringing you in-depth analysis of some of the key contemporary issues in international affairs, with a focus on analysing conflict resolution, peace building and security issues. Dublin City University's Institute for Conflict Resolution is launching a new programme of research and analysis on key issues that will be at the heart of public debate around possible referenda north and south on Irish unity. My name is John Doyle, Director of DCU Conflict Institute. I spoke with Aoife Moore, political correspondent for the Irish Examiner newspaper, about the need to initiate such a project and our commitment to make the research available and accessible to the general public. My name is Aoife Moore. I am a political correspondent at the Irish Examiner based in Leinster House and I am originally from Derry City. So this is why I felt this was a really worthwhile podcast to be involved in and something I'm really interested in. Um, so I think we'll just uh, start at the start. John, could you give us a wee bit of background about why you felt this was necessary now and the kind of context around why uh, the timing of this is so important? Okay, I mean, I suppose from those of us working in the university sector, uh, it was the aftermath of Brexit, I think, probably started this. And to be honest, maybe we wouldn't be doing it now if it wasn't for Brexit. It would be needed some stage in the future, but probably not this quickly. But I think a lot of people felt that one of the consequences of Brexit has been a renewed debate on the constitutional question in Ireland and, and whether a referendum on an Irish unity should be held in the short term rather than the long term, or at least in a sort of five-year timescale seems to be sort of emerging as a possible um, timescale. Uh, but we're not ready to have that referendum today. Um, if we had that referendum today, it would be in some ways similar in scope to the Brexit referendum. You'd be asking people to vote on a principle and you wouldn't really be able to tell them what the consequences of that was. You know, so some people voting for Brexit thought the UK would remain in the single market or even the customs union. Um, some people thought 350 million a week was going to be spent on the NHS. Um, you know, people had, uh, and even people who were promoting Brexit like Michael Gove, you know, more or less explicitly said they would remain in the single market. So it wasn't that people who weren't listening properly uh, got confused. People who were paying a lot of attention had no way of knowing what the British government was going to do if the referendum was passed. Uh, it was all up in the air. And it's very hard during the referendum to clarify that. So the last thing we want is a referendum on Irish unity, which looks an awful lot like the 2016 referendum on Brexit. So we need to start that debate now in good time. And that, that was, I suppose, where we were coming from. And just on that, do you think there could have been more done? And I think the Irish government would argue that they did all they could. But do you feel that, especially within Britain, not necessarily even Scotland and Wales, but in, in England, do you think anyone uh, was aware or was made feel the importance of the effect on Ireland, the constitutional effect? You know, we often saw you know, politicians at the border, they were having these press conferences. But I always kind of got the feeling, you know, this is a personal thing to me, that a lot of people in England didn't really understand the constitutional issue with the North, didn't understand the free-flowing trade and everything else. Do you think more could have been done at the time to kind of head home that context? Or do you think we were fighting a losing battle against, you know, a superpower who wanted to uh, <laughs> rule the world again? Yeah, I think it was... Maybe you could always have done more in hindsight, but it was a tricky one for the Irish government. It's always you don't want to be accused of interfering 
in the democratic decision of a neighboring state. In some ways, that's uh, what Irish people have said about Britain over centuries. Um, so it was a tricky one. Now, ministers obviously did go over and did events with the Irish community in particular. Um, the, the Irish diaspora sort of focused newspapers covered the issues. Um, opinion polls would suggest Irish people were no less likely to vote for Brexit. I think, to be honest, the Conservative Party in England, who were the drivers of this, didn't really give two seconds thought to Ireland. It wasn't that they considered it and didn't care. It never even got into their heads as an issue to debate. And when it was put to them in interviews, which it was, I mean, not often, but occasionally through the campaign, they just tended to dismiss it as being, because they hadn't thought about it, so they didn't see the problems, and in some ways they didn't care. Um, but if you look at the opinion polls that were done afterwards, particularly during the withdrawal agreement sort of phase, when there was, you know, it was on the news almost every day on sort of mainstream English media, uh, there was really reliable polls done by YouGov and some other polling companies, which put to Conservative Party voters, well, if you had to give up Northern Ireland to achieve Brexit, or if you had to give up Scotland to achieve Brexit, I mean, a clear majority of English Tory voters would have given up both Northern Ireland and Scotland. So Brexit became this absolute priority for them. Um, I mean, in some ways, bizarrely, given they were the Conservative and Unionist Party, that they're actually willing to carve up their own country to achieve an ill-defined concept called Brexit. Um, so I think in some ways, even if a lot more work had been done, I think one my, my fear from the moment the referendum was called was that the Conservative leadership, who, like David Cameron, thought they could call it, defeat it, and then move on with their lives. Um, my fear was that it was going to pass once it was called. It was just that you know solid vote in England in particular that didn't see themselves as part of Europe. Ireland was not going to enter their heads as an issue. Um, they were just going for this dream of being a big, important, independent country again. Mm. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to my next point. When we think about, you know, the North and the communities in the North, I remember seeing that poll that you talked about, you know, would you give up Northern Ireland if it meant, you know, that you could have Brexit? And I remember thinking, if I was a unionist, uh, living in the north and, and I have you know like grown up with uh, Presbyterian friends and stuff uh, at university and I remember thinking how insulting and let down that you must feel um, for that community especially in loyalist communities where you know they've been very much left behind by the Good Friday Agreement in terms of you know socioeconomic issues, drugs, paramilitarism and their abiding you know loyalty is to Britain and then to see you know that the Conservative Party who they claim they have great interest in the loyalist community and you know a great affinity loyalist community would be willing um, to basically give them up to sell them down the river um, so that you know less uh, Polish people could come um, to Britain to work so kind of brings me to my next point and that kind of disaffected uh, voter, especially in the north, both in you know loyalist and republican communities, there are a lot of people, and I talk about this often. That a Good Friday Agreement is left behind, um, you know, in rates of poverty, debt, drug addiction, gambling addiction, all those things that in working class, low, lower income class communities. How do you feel in terms of when I were talking about a referendum on the Irish constitutional question? those disaffected people, and it will be more likely, obviously, in the loyalist and unionist communities who will be against a united Ireland. Um, how do you feel like 
that kind of those communities can be reached can they be reached um when it comes to you know the argument for united ireland because i would worry that these people have already promised that the good friday agreement was going to you know make their lives better and end the violence you know the peace dividend the so-called peace dividend do you feel like there is a fight uh on the hands of whoever is campaigning for united ireland to get those communities on board um yeah, i think just two two parts that i mean i i think you know the reality is if a referendum was called in the relatively short term so between now and five or six years time you'd expect that most unionists and loyalists would vote against uh that referendum i think they're, they're not in a headspace where uh they could hear the debates on the economy or social welfare um and it's very hard um you know you listen to some of the pretty the radio programs uh coming out of belfast nolan and the likes you know it's just um you know people can just say the most outrageous things and they're just treated as being true um but even things you know not as mad as some of the things that get said but you know the jamals would just regularly say everybody in the south has to pay to go to a doctor and mm-hmm. there's no great love for the HSE in the South, as you know, but it's just simply not true <laughs> yeah, that everybody yeah. has to pay to go to a doctor. It's about 50% of the population, you know, mm-hmm. so... Um, Still too many, I would argue, but... <laughs> oh, no, exactly. And I think it's something that needs to be resolved before a... Well, it is officially government policy, though no sign of it being implemented. Um, you know, I think there's no great awareness, uh, I would think, in unionist communities in the North that pension payments are more or less 100% higher, that, that you know... Social welfare is whatever, 200 and odds, 203, 208. The, the pandemic payment was 350 in the South and you got an extra 20 universal credit in the North. I think people are so strongly uh, attached to their broader political opinion that it's very hard to break through on those issues. And even if you do with an individual, you know, as you can more easily in a conversation, you'll get the view, well, that's all very well, but I'm still... You know, I know the British government don't love Northern Ireland. That's not what causes me to be a unionist. I'm a unionist despite the fact that Boris Johnson doesn't care. Um, and so it is very hard, but it is, I think there's two reasons why you still have to persevere. One is unionism traditionally defined was about 43% in the last election. Uh, if you, for the three main unionist parties and the loyalist independents or whatever, you know, fairly consistently now under 45%. So there's that growing other segment in the middle, many of whom come from a traditional unionist background, probably a, a clear majority of people who define themselves as others come from a traditional unionist background. I mean, the statistical analysis would suggest that and some of the polling. And that group are much more open uh, to a debate around the constitution of future. I mean, I think in some ways the Alliance Party today uh, is much more reflective of that group than maybe the Alliance Party in the 70s and early 80s, where you know, they were rightly characterized as a sort of small U unionist party, you know, a civic or polite unionist party, mm-hmm. but their commitment to the union was beyond doubt. Whereas now I think the party genuinely reflects a group of people for whom that's not the biggest priority right now. But if the debate is happening, they're happy to take part in that debate. They, they don't have a fixed view. And some of the recent polling would suggest that the party is pretty much split three ways uh, between those who would definitely vote for United Ireland, those who genuinely are not unsure and those who are definitely going to vote to stay in the united kingdom and that third group of people who are committed small UU unionists are actually the smallest of the three segments inside the alliance party and the green party at the moment so there is a group there who definitely want to know about welfare pensions the nhs the education system 
um, they would definitely want to see either an NHS style system implemented or at least on its way to being implemented before a referendum was called. But I think also there's probably sub-awareness that for all the flaws of the HSE, most in most parts of the country, you can get to see a doctor the day you call, even <laughs> if you have the 50 percent on the higher incomes I have to pay for it. I can tell you that that is not the case in the north. <laughs> no, no, I mean, I know from both friends and colleagues in the north and, and um, my wife's in Liverpool. So I know it's I mean the same in the north of England. I mean, sometimes up to 14 days before yeah, you get it. I mean, weeks. so a lot of normal things you'd actually be well before you get a chance to see a doctor. So I think people would in the south, I think, want a free health system. I think that is the absolute political consensus. But they also want a system where the doctor actually exists. It's not just theoretically <laughs> free. Um, so solving both of those problems is obviously expensive and tricky. Um, but I think the middle ground in Northern Ireland would want that. I mean, and the second thing, apart from that middle ground voters, you know, around 20% of the population now, they'll be absolutely, they will be the people who will determine the outcome of an Irish unity referendum. There's also what happens the morning after. You know, so say for the sake of argument, the 43, 45% of unionists to a person vote against United Ireland and the others and the nationalists vote in favour of it. So you wake up in the morning, you hear the results of the referendum, you're a unionist and you've lost. But there's 43% of you. You know, that's a big community feeling, you know, very hurt, very abandoned. Um, what you want at the very least is before a referendum, those people knowing that they're identity, their their civil liberties, their NHS, their pensions will be protected and preserved, that they would have a full part in the debate, even if they chose not to take part in the debate before a referendum, as I think is probably the most likely for political unionism, that at least they were aware there was some civil society debate taking place beforehand, and that the door is now 100% open for political unionism to take part in the debate about their own future. Um, in political science, that's sometimes called loser's consent, you know, so it's the notion of why do people who lose a referendum or lose a, an election still just get on with life, however bad they are? Because the, the bigger picture is more important to them, democracy as a whole or the nature of society. In a referendum, that can be you know, very tricky. But there's, there's evidence in lots of places that even people who trenchantly campaigned against something will accept a majority view. I mean, the abortion debate in the South, people who really argued not to reform the law the overwhelming majority of them are not campaigning to reverse the referendum results now. They sort of campaigned strenuously while they was there, but it's a much smaller minority who are looking to go and push things back. They just, the rest moved on with their lives and accepted the outcome. And what you want is the as big a chunk as possible, that 43%, to know that they would be welcoming United Ireland and the things they would have the huge concerns about, like health and the economy and pensions, will be resolved in a way that advantages them rather than disadvantages them. And, that, and that's why you know, looking at those broader socioeconomic issues, those communities, so you say, who certainly feel left behind and statistically have been left behind, don't wake up on the morning of a referendum result without a clue what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. I actually, I worked in Scotland. I lived in Glasgow for years and years, and I covered the independence referendum there as a journalist in the west coast of Scotland. And I often make the point to people um, here when they talk about a United Ireland, you know, the SNP had a 900 page white paper and they still lost. <laughs> so, you know, even with all the research and everything else, it's the argument that has to be won. And we're not even doing enough of the research, let alone making the argument. And, you know, another person made the point to me that the issue with 
Ireland in our constitutional future is we don't want to end up um, like Germany. Um, there's this, you know, the notion that the reunification of Germany, um, there was very little previous work done and everyone was caught on the hop then when they were trying to, you know, implement governments and, put, and one kind of subsumed the other rather than um, becoming, you know, two states becoming one again. But I want to just kind of touch on the kind of the Scottish independence referendum because I think there's a lot of parallels there. Although the sectarian kind of divide, the religious kind of divide, it was especially in Glasgow where I lived. You know, obviously we they had the football teams and everything else, so that was a bit more pronounced. But for the most part, you know, they didn't have you know that hangover sectarian hangover but the issues that it came down to you've been over them already you know pensions the NHS your national insurance like I remember even my uh, boyfriend at the time you know his parents were voting no he was voting yes and there was long debates in his house and his parents said you know if we vote for independence we're going to lose our pension and he said well who told you that like <laughs> There was a lot of, you know, misinformation. There was a lot of fear mongering, especially from, you know, um, typically English conservative newspapers in Scotland. And um, also the 900 page white paper is not something the man in the street sits down and reads um, after his dinner. So the kind of work that you are doing, the kind of work that's being done in, in DCU, is that the kind of academic research that you would be focusing on now? Would it be the pensions? Would it be the national insurance or PRSA or, or, or whatever else? Yeah, so it's the full range. Um, I mean, notwithstanding publishing that 900 pages, in some ways, all the opinion polling after the referendum of 2014 would suggest that the main reason the SNP lost it by a few percentages rather than won it by a few percentage points wasn't to do with Scottish identity and the big constitutional questions. It was precisely currency, uh, trade issues, the, the pensions and health issues. Um, people were unconvinced that the SNP had answers in those. And on currency theory, they didn't have an answer. It wasn't that people were ill-informed. The SNP yeah. tried to fudge it um, and didn't and get away with the that. Amount, the amount of hustings I went to where the word Scottish point was used. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think those are absolute. So I think there is a range. I mean, there's a lot of research been done over the last 12 months. So there are now things for which we do more or less, I think, have answers in terms of, you know, how might you organise a referendum, who would be entitled to vote in it, some of the legal issues where that research, you know, is starting to produce some results. Um, I think some of the big issues where the work remains to be done and absolutely needs to be done is what would it cost to have a best of both worlds health system on the island? So you have the free at point of care of the NHS model, I think, you know, that's just a, a real touchstone across all communities in Northern Ireland. And I think people are not uh, going to be really interested is. in a different model. Uh, like my, even my mommy always says, you know, that she always thought, you know, someday she would see United Ireland, but she always then prefaces, prefaces it with, but I'm not paying to go with the doctor. <laughs> yeah, and that's it. And yet, when you look at actual health outcomes, you know, Northern Ireland is, you know, life expectancy is worse than the South. Health outcomes in almost every sector are worse than the South. The number of doctors is 40% lower per capita than the South. So in terms of, like, in some ways, the North people love the idea of the NHS, but they're not blind to the flaws. Um, whereas in the South, people pretty much hate the HSC as a concept, but <laughs> at the same time, they want to protect the notion that you can have access to a healthcare system. So that's, 
you know, that's not simple. Um, even costing that, I mean, the government have just reports launching care, which is officially all party consensus policy, but it's not defined precisely how that would happen. I mean, the Dutch model or the Belgian model, it's it's free at the point of use. And that, well, in Belgium, you, you pay to go to your doctor, but then you get a refund usually about seven days later into your bank account, but it's insurance-based, typically through trade unions and other uh, mutual associations. So it's, whereas the NHS obviously is paid directly from taxation. So there are different models where it's not costing you personally. Um, but also the question of how many doctors, how many hospitals, I mean, one of the big debates in the North over recent years is everybody accepts probably 10 acute hospitals is too many for somewhere the size of Northern Ireland, but there's no agreement on which five or four uh, should become the centers of excellence. Um, so people know to get better care in a for you know sort of complex illnesses like cancer in a bigger, more specialist hospital, but they're worried they won't have access to it or it'll be too far away or it, you know, it'll end up just being four small hospitals that can't cope. Um, so there are there's some really you know important research there. And underlying that is the economic issues because somebody has to pay for it. Um, so you know, why is the Northern economy so weak for so long? Why was there no peace dividend? I mean, really the economy didn't grow after the ceasefire. I mean, everyone just assumed it would sort of almost automatically by itself. Surely in the absence of armed conflict, the economy would do better than you it was think. doing during an armed <laughs> conflict. And while it's, it's obviously the economy has grown, but it's grown no faster than anywhere else in Europe, really. Um, so it, it hasn't caught up. Uh, you know, parts of you know Derry and Strabane are still among the poorest local authority areas in all of Western Europe, not just mm -hmm. in the UK system or Ireland. Um, you know, so there's a depth of of poverty, uh, of sort of not finishing school lack of skills they're going to give people. So unemployment is very low in the North, but low pay is absolutely endemic. And so, so many people who are working are relying on universal credit or food banks, even worse, to get to the mm -hmm. end of a month. So, um, I mean, it's hard to credit how you would just, given the British welfare state in some ways was a classic West European model of cradle to grave. You know, it, you mightn't have lived very well as part of the UK welfare state, but you'd live to a situation mm -hmm. where American style food banks are now you know, the norm. absolutely par parcel the norm, it, it seems um, not. So I think those economic questions as to why the Northern economy has been weak, um, at my point of view, some of the work I've started doing in that around the subvention in particular is, you know, foreign direct investment into Northern Ireland since the ceasefires runs at about 30 to 40% of the level in the South. You know, so really, really underperforming. Mm. Um, and, and why is, you know, um, why is that? I mean, some of it's related to skill sets and, and labor market issues. But and my view is, and this is research we're trying to do at the moment, mostly it's probably to do with political uncertainty. You know, if you're Intel and you're sitting in North America and you're looking at a burning bus on the Shankill Road at a protocol protest, is that really where you're going to invest, you know, 10 mm -hmm. billion in a new plant and, and think you're going to recruit 5,000 workers of a certain skill set? I think that my sense is Northern Ireland never even gets to the shortlist. It's not a question of the minute of exactly how many graduates are available, but that's important. Mm -hmm. But but it's the whole notion that this is a place that's not yet politically settled. Um, and in the context of it, United Ireland, which was you know done properly and and consensually, even if people uh, campaigned against the outcome that, that they accepted it. Why would Belfast be any worse for foreign direct investment than Cork? 
mm-hmm. um, or Galway. But for instance, there's no logical reason why they would remain performing as badly. Why would tourism be 50% of the level in Derry as it is in Donegal? I mean, there's no, there's no reason why that would be the case. It's the critical context where the Wild Atlantic Way, one of the most successful marketing campaigns launched by a tourism authority in any country in the last couple of decades, stops in Donegal. Mm-hmm. rather than bringing people to its natural conclusion into Derry City and along the North Coast. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so you have this huge brand, and because politically, DUP ministers not want to be associated with an All-Ireland brand. They literally prevent people marketing Northern Ireland internationally in a way that would bring tourism. For me, some of those big issues around FDI and tourism, it's the political context. It's a division which is going to get worse under Brexit because now it's in and out, even with the protocol. Northern Ireland is still not in the European Union. It has more advantages than Scotland. Mm-hmm. But there's still some complexity to being in Northern Ireland as distinct from being in Monaghan. Um, and I think those issues, it, it's the modelling that, you know, do we obviously some disruption with trade with Britain, but what is the positives in terms of foreign direct investment tourism and being in the European Union? How much would that lead the economy to grow? And would that be enough not only to have people with a decent wage, but also to fund decent pensions and welfare payments and to bring those to a level at least they are in the south and to fix the problems that exist in the south and also to fund the national health system which I think would be um one of the things that came out of just to finish this point in Scotland is notwithstanding in the 900 pages which covered everything from agriculture to you know every department you could think of oh I remember you know, it well <laughs> the reality is that most of those issues never got debated mm-hmm. people just parked them they weren't the issues of concern um, and if you look at the debate in, around those economic issues uh, on Northern Ireland, even though in some ways welfare and pensions is probably a bigger issue for more people, um, health has got discussed much more often because it's very immediate. You either pay to go to a doctor or you don't. You know, it's it's easy to understand. Everybody gets it. Whereas how many acute hospitals should we have in the island? People are already not listening, you know, unless mm-hmm. it's about their hospital. They are funding pensions in for 30 years' time people have already changed channel. You know, so the SNP, I think, misunderstood that even though they needed to have an answer to all those issues, there needs mm-hmm. to be a 900 pages, but the reality was most people would never read it. What they wanted to know about was two or three crucial issues, pensions, the economy, mm-hmm. currency. And I think it'll be the same ultimately on a border poll. Some issues will tidy up beforehand and there'll be a broad, yeah, that, that seems about right. That's how we'll do agriculture. That's how we'll do the guards and the PSNI. That's how we'll do the army, people can move or they can stay, you know, and they'll never get debated again. And it'll only be afterwards you go and sort out the small print. But people will absolutely want answers on pensions, the NHS and the economy. And therefore, the research has really got to have detailed answers on those questions. And just to talk a wee bit about the current situation in Northern Ireland, you know, you said um, there's talk now of even, you know, five years um, of water pool. I can't see that personally. I'm not an expert and willing to be um, proved wrong. But the current situation in Northern Ireland, you know, as a Northerner living in the South, um, I think Northerners have an abiding sense of doom <laughs> when it comes to politics all the time, no more so than when the DUP walked away from Stormont at the start of the year. Um, so what the current uh, stance that we're in, the current state that we're in, is that, you know, the DUP have resigned the First Ministry. Now, it's not as depressing, maybe, as it could have been considering we knew the restorement elections due in May, the politicians had been in campaign mode uh, for a really long time. 
already. Do you think, um, now we know from polling and the census data that this may, this election may return the first ever majority that is not unionist in the North. You know that people have fallen away from those traditional orange and green labels that, you know, the DUP, from what all the polling is saying, are trailing Sinn Féin um, and even the UUP uh, in some polls. Um, I have a fear, personally, that the DUP will not return to Stormont um, because they said that they have walked away from Stormont because of the row about the protocol. The cynic in me says that it's not about the row the about the protocol. Um, to me, it kind of states that they are floundering in the polls. They are hemorrhaging voters on the right to the more traditional TUV and on the left, the UUP alliance, as you said, the Green Party, those in-betweeners who would have been traditional unionist voters at one point, especially younger people, you know, have fallen away, become more centrist in their views and then they're more likely to vote for alliance and everything else. My fear would be that if Sinn Féin does come back as the biggest party or there's no longer a unionist majority, that the DUP will not come back to Stormont. Uh, Brian Rowan, very uh, prominent Northern Ireland journalist, has written a book about this. He said, you know, the last chance we had was the last time we got Stormont back together. You know, the Trojan work that was done by Simon Coveney and the British Secretary of State to get, you know, after the Irish Language Act, after RHIE to bring the parties back to Stormont. I have a fear that that can't be done again. Um, there isn't a will or a Secretary of State in the British government. Brandon Lewis is not. Um, doesn't appear to be as dedicated as you would like him to be. Do you think that Stormont will return? And if it does, do you think that that would encourage more debate about United Ireland or do you think if we are stuck in another stasis if we are stuck in the mud for another couple of years without a functioning executive how do you think that'll affect the border pool debate yeah um I'm just sort of I think I can understand your sort of sense of pessimism and fatalism <laughs> Thanks. a slightly more optimistic note I think the amount of legislation that the assembly has been passing since the collapse you know um, some of the debates around, you know, violence against women, stalking, have managed, people managed to, to squeeze through in that crucial number of weeks that rather than just collapse the assembly and, and go straight into campaign mode, has given people a sense that actually it matters that there's a devolved assembly. And you see the same issues coming across in Wales, where unlike Scotland, you know, um, Wales, to, to support for devolution was always more divided and people uh, didn't love the idea of the Welsh Assembly initially, now the Senate. But as it's got its teeth into developing issues, there's now more, much more support for it now than there was at the beginning. It's sort of grown into itself. And a problem for the Assembly uh, in Belfast has been it's been not working as much as it's been working. If you take the period from 2000, you know, more or less half the time it hasn't been sitting. But when it has, people do have a sense that London-based ministers wouldn't have prioritised this legislation. It wouldn't have got through at all or wouldn't have got through in the way it's been now done. Um, and I think that will put a little bit of pressure on unionist parties to go back into executive. I think you're right, it won't happen if Sinn Féin are the largest party in terms of seats, which is the crucial issue. They could be the largest party on votes, but not seats. Um, if they are the largest party in terms of seats and therefore automatically get to nominate the first minister, I think it's almost certain the unionist parties would not nominate a first minister immediately. 
um, and there'd be some sense of crisis. But whether that would be the permanent position and affect the end of the power sharing experiment for, for the medium term, which is what it would be, I think, if they never came back from that position. And there will be some pressure from their own base to to reassess that. Um, the other possibility is um, the DP have clearly, they lost a more or less equal amount of votes to the Alliance Party and to the TUV. I mean, their, their, vote, their voter base deserted in two completely different directions. But they made this tactical choice to go chasing the TUV vote. So they've in some ways hardened their position on Brexit and the protocol, hardened their language. Yeah. So they've decided they couldn't chase both these sets of voters. So let's go after the TUV one. Presumably on the basis that probably the only candidate that anyone knows who'll be standing for the TUV is Jim Allister. Mm-hmm. Um, he's only going to be standing in one of the 18 constituencies. And so will other people who listen to Jim Allister uh, on the radio, but they turn up the vote and his name is not there, will instead <laughs> vote for the DUP person whose name mm-hmm. they know. Um, or they'll certainly transfer those votes back to so the DUP having the great first preference vote. And everywhere apart from Jim Allister's own constituency, that vote will transfer back to them fairly solidly. Mm-hmm. Now, it may or may not. TV voters might be so annoyed to do a classic, what Sinn Féin used to do in the 80s and early 90s, is just plump one party and go no further. But I think they probably will transfer. And so the DUP could still end up with the most seats. I mean, that, 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 the opinion polls don't categorically rule that out. It depends on the lower preferences. Um, but if they do end up second and don't nominate a minister, then I think we are looking at a period where there would be no executive for sure. Um, and then the question is whether there's enough pressure on them from their own political base to make them reassess that situation where people just see them as being, well, irrelevant. Well, we've elected you, but you're not in there fighting our corner. Mm-hmm. You're not passing any laws. Everything's back in London again and therefore nothing really gets decided ever. Or you just get cut and paste versions of laws that were written with England in mind um, that aren't really appropriate to the circumstances in Northern Ireland. So I think... It's not inconceivable that the DUP in those circumstances would find some way um, of talking themselves back into the executive. In particular, some sort, well, either there'll be a deal between the UK and the EU sometime over the next six months to nine months, or it'll just be a disaster where there'll be, once you get past the current Ukraine crisis, um, talks will just break down completely. Yeah, one crisis if there is at a, a deal, time. <laughs> yeah. If there is a deal, then I think the DUP might be under more pressure to go back into the executive because all the huffing and puffing about the protocol will be over because there'll be a long-term deal between London and Brussels, which I think will include something. They might give their new name, but it'll include the protocol and all but name. Um, but there might be enough change of language there for Jeffrey Donaldson to claim victory and go back into mm-hmm. the executive not because he really thinks he's been victorious on the EU trade issues, but because his political base are saying, well, what's the point in voting for you if you're not going to go into, um, we may as well have direct rule and just abandon it. Um, so I wouldn't be, you know, I think there's a real danger. We'll never have another power sharing executive. I think that that threat is real, um, but it's not impossible. If that is where we end up with a no devolved government in Northern Ireland, then I think for the great, great bulk of nationalists, their attention will turn to constitutional change because they just think, well, we tried a good Friday agreement, we tried power mm-hmm. sharing, we, we've given it a good long stretch in and out of government and it's going nowhere. And for some of the others, that might also be their view, particularly if there's a total breakdown in UK-EU relations. So if Northern Ireland is really out of the EU market and the possible benefits of the protocol no longer exist, it's a little Englander mentality rules London, um, then I think 
a lot of people in the business community in agriculture are going to be you know losing so much money going in some ways what uh, Mike Nesbitt said during the week in terms of think the unthinkable you know something that in some ways something they don't want to look at it's not that they're gagging to talk about a United Ireland but in some ways if you're a farmer who's been farming for generations and suddenly you see no way to pay the bills at the end of the year um, and you know that the only reason you can't pay the bills at the end of the year is not because you've been a bad farmer it's because Britain has just completely changed the rules and made it impossible for you to farm sheep or whatever in Northern Ireland then I think it certainly undermines your sense that the union is now of something of benefit to you. And I think that would, you know, not for hardcore unionists, but I think for those who are already thinking of voting alliance or already voting alliance, um, genuinely open up a debate in the constitutional future, which would be then be back to the questions we talked about earlier on the economy, health, agricultural policy. That's what they'll want to know before they go any further with their thinking. Yeah, it always brings me back to that John Hume quote that um, you can't eat a flag. So, you know, then you might be married to your unionism or your loyalism. But then if, as you say, you can't put food on the table, if your life is being immeasurably made worse by the union, you know, people vote with their feet, you know. And I think a lot of it is, and I say this all the time, but for most people, you know, it's not the green and orange. It's not the queen and country. It's, um, you know, what are my wages going to look like? Like, what kind of schools are my children going to go to? And that's what people care about. You know, I don't know many um, nationalists who would be willing to give up the NHS, who would be willing to immediately be make their lives worse just to say that the, the, they live in a united Ireland. So I think these are the issues, you know, that really are going to have to be teased out. Um, Maybe one last thing, I, mean, I would just yeah. say we can sort of just take it in, is that I think if we do this research programme over the next two to three years, I think that's how long it would take to answer most of those high-level questions in the economy and health. Then in parallel to that, um, my view is that there should be an Oireachtas committee uh, in Leinster House to then brings the political system into that debate because before a referendum will be held, you know, a transition to United Ireland is going to take more than one parliament. So therefore, rather than the government of today, which might be the government by the time the thing happens, if you had an all-party committee which says, we all agree that a United Ireland would have an NHS, and here's how we would run it, and here's how many doctors we'd need, and this is what it would cost, and we'll move to it over a five-year period, and here's what we think would happen on foreign direct investment, and this is the way we'd merge Garda Shikana and the PSNI. Uh, and that would be your 1,000-page documents of the SNP, you know, the 900 pages plus the things they didn't answer. Um, which is then on the table. And it would be debated with political unionism after a referendum if they were passed north and south. But at least it would have the status of an Oireachtas committee saying, well, here's our opening shot as what this could look like. And here's what we would bring to the table and propose. And if you don't disagree, this is what we'd implement. But if you think there's a different way or a better way of doing it, then come to the table and discuss it with us. And that's what we hope this program of research will kickstart, is enough information in the public sphere so politicians can bring in other bits of evidence, bring in the stakeholders and start drafting that SNP-like thousand pages for United Ireland. Um, okay, uh, I think we'll leave it there. I think we covered quite a lot of ground. Um, I'm feeling a bit more optimistic and less cynical <laughs> than I was before. Thank you so much, John, um, for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it and all the best for the division and all the work that you are doing in the future and maybe we'll come back next year and see how you're getting home. 
that'd be great thanks Eva. it was a really good conversation i really enjoyed it and uh hopefully yeah we'll bring more people into the conversation thank you very much